All right, and on this week of Over Here, I'm here with Jeremy Siskin, great pianist uh, from the West Coast, whose release is coming out at the end of the month, uh, Perpetual Motion Etudes. Uh, man, why don't you explain a little bit about that? Because the idea of perpetual motion is is an interesting concept. So what was the, what was the goal behind this album? Yeah, so uh, for those of you who might not know, perpetual motion in terms of piano playing means that kind of between your two hands, you're constantly playing. So it might be your left hand playing on a beat and then your right hand playing on a beat. Uh, but it's kind of this like intense tennis match back and forth between your left hand and your right hand. Um, and I got really interested in this because I love kind of stretching the piano to its just like fullest, most complex, most intricate capabilities. Um, and some of my favorite musicians like Brad Meldow, Fred Hirsch, Tigran, I heard them doing these things that involve these kind of complex perpetual motion uh, textures. And I wanted to teach myself to improvise using those textures. And so as kind of a tool for myself, I started writing these etudes. And as I was writing and developing them, I kind of realized that they were pieces I was really proud of that I wanted to share um, that weren't just, you know, technical exercises, but had this emotional richness to it um, that I thought was really representative of where, where I am with my music right now. So um, I decided to make a record and also release a book of the etudes. So as an educator and and a musician yourself i feel that might have been maybe a little difficult to to work on because i don't know in my experience we're always told to focus on like playing less to an extent because i think so many people get like a sense of uh being uncomfortable when they're young you know with the space so how was that difficult for you to try and get out of that other mindset and to filling the time constantly or, or how did you work through that yeah, absolutely. So it's really hard, um, you know, for anybody playing a long solo portion, you have to fill the space because you're the only one playing. Uh, but on the other hand, it shouldn't feel um, compacted or it shouldn't feel busy or it shouldn't feel, you know, overly just stuffed with notes. So uh, part of the trick of this is to um, make it feel like it's breathing even when you're kind of playing through it. So, you know, figuring out where is a melody and where's more of an accompaniment part. Um, but then the other side of that is, you know, to make a whole record of these types of pieces, um, there's gotta be a lot of variety in it. And so when we uh, think of the perpetual motion texture, usually it's kind of like a Takata-like texture, you know, really aggressive, percussive, and fast. Um, but there are some etudes here, which are, um, still in that perpetual motion texture, but in maybe a less obvious way, things that, kind of are more dreamy or um, more mournful uh, at tons of different tempos. So I wanted to take this idea and see how much I could kind of stretch it to give it musical and emotional variety. Yeah, because especially when you mention like Brad Meldow, that's someone who I think, you know, does this like incredibly with like his solo piano on like Marciac yeah. album and all this such, or even Bill Evans and his solo piano records. And it's like, I think that easily when someone first gets this idea of perpetual motion, they're just thinking of like strings of eighth notes, you know? Right. Or, and it's, it's the beauty of like hemiolas and, and this idea of like uh, uh, um, stagnant, not stagnant's not even the right word, you know, but like uh, isolated figures in one hand while another figure is doing something else or whatnot. And that's, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. How have you brought this back to like groups or, or to duo projects or whatnot? Yeah, so I'm actually about to uh, go off on a tour with uh, Angeline Chang, who's a Grammy-winning classical pianist. And we're actually 
going to do this as kind of an exchange where she's going to play the through composed parts of the etudes, the ones that a classical player can play. And then she's going to trade it off to me and I'm going to um, be, be doing the improvisation portions. Um, so that's really fun. And I've actually also gotten to do some university uh, projects where I'll go and each student in the classical department will be assigned an etude. And so I'll actually play two pianos with them and they'll play again, the through composed portion and I'll improvise. Um, a couple of these pieces I've, uh, I've actually played with my trio, which is the, the housewarming project. Um, and some of those get really complicated where maybe I'll be playing the etude and then I'll write even a melody and a counter melody above that. Um, and, uh, that's another kind of, uh, exercise. And then, then I have to play this really complex etude, but be a good accompanist and play really nice and softly. Um, but one of the ways that I think about it is like, um, I'm a, I've become a big fan of guitar music and particularly acoustic guitar music. Mm. And they do such a good job of filling the space um, with kind of, you know, I don't think they think of it this way with these perpetual motion type accompaniments. And so sometimes I like to think of it as like, you're almost imitating an acoustic guitar who might be accompanying a vocalist or something like that. So yeah. um, I'm trying to bring some of those elements uh, into uh, the piano and uh, bring, bring the guitar stuff that I love um, onto my instrument. Yeah. And it's nuts that you mentioned that because, uh, when I, you know, when you sent us over the tracks or whatever, and I had listened to one of them, I, the first thing I thought of was like Astor Piazzolla. Oh, cool. Um, and like that composition. So when, when you're writing this and when you were composing this, I know that you said originally the intent was exercises, you know, to work on a skill that you thought needed to be developed. Um, mm -hmm. was there a composition method to this? Did, was you like, here's a beautiful melody. Now let me, work on this technique in between or like did each of the etudes cover a specific aspect um or or how did you go about that yeah each one really developed differently um so some of them early maybe i would write a lead sheet of something that was more like a tune and then i would add the perpetual motion kind of part to that lead sheet um for example anybody hearing the, the record number two which is called van gogh's dream I kind of just made a sketch of the harmony and the melody that I want. And then I filled it in with this perpetual motion technique. Other ones, it's much more integrated. Um, perpetual motion etude number five, which is called Piccadilly Circus, is kind of like a pseudo-Brazilian thing. Um, and it was inspired by a conversation I had with the great pianist Vardan of Sebian. Um, and Vardan was talking about um, how he thinks one of the mo most interesting things in piano texture is having the hands overlap. Um, because you get a different sound, even if uh, it's something that you could play with one hand, you just get a different kind of uh, texture at the piano when it's shared between two hands. So that one I set out to make something that had like kind of an extreme overlap of hands. Um, and then the seventh one, Floating, um, is this uh, piece which is all about the left hand crossing over the right um, in kind of some extreme ways. So some of them were born out of like a te technical uh, thought um, and then other ones uh, started with just a melody and uh, the perpetual motion thing was just, uh, hey, here's one possible accompaniment that I can make to this. Um, so that was that was just fun to, um, you know, I, uh, I think compositions can come from all different places. And we, try, we tend to think that like, oh, it's got to be the thing that's born from just some deep seated feeling, some, you know, over overpouring emotion. That makes a great composition. Um, but sometimes you need a little box to write into to put your emotion into. So coming up with different little boxes uh, to throw myself into was just really fun as a composer. Yeah, I I mean, that's the way 
I was even taught in school, you know, is, is doing composition through limitations because when everything's out there, it's like you're saying, there's so much uh, options that it's almost overwhelming and hard to go totally forward ever. Um, so this is really cool. And do you, like, I know we talked a little bit about how you're, you're experiencing it with duo piano or with your, your trio and whatnot. Um, yeah. how do you think that a horn player or, or a bass player, or, I mean, a drummer, I guess is a little more different with the idea of perpetual motion, but like, how do you, they incorporate this kind of concept into their playing? Or do you think it's really only a piano thing because of the nature or, or in guitar and whatnot, because of the nature of being able to accompany and uh, play something more melodic at the same time? Right. So I think there is something really privileged about the piano um, in, in this world um, because we can do serve so many functions at the same time. That said, I think like, for example, the box cello suites is such a great example of kind of a perpetual motion texture. Um, and one of the things that we can learn from that is, um, you know, the ability for um, any instrumentalist to play both an accompaniment and a melody at the same time. Um, and I think it can definitely be a useful function uh, for, you know, say a horn player to practice playing a melody and then maybe something that's more of a counter melody uh, within their own, you know, just single line instrument. Um, and that can be really rewarding. So um, I think we can look to Bach for, for inspiration for how single line instruments um, can adopt these kinds of textures. And I think it's a fun technical challenge, but you know, some people have to take breaths. So that makes yeah, life yeah, more yeah. difficult. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, and it's also interesting. It's really awesome to hear you, uh, consistently uh be referencing all of these like classical composers because i think a lot of young jazz musicians and whatnot um i don't think it's out of like intentional ignorance i think it's just out of like being overwhelmed with so much you know tend to to lean away from checking out like a ravel or a wc or a bach like really listening to their works other than what's required for you know music history um, mm -hmm. because we're so like, oh, I want to, you know, I'm so motivated to go check out this other stuff, but they're doing like beautiful stuff, you know, like Ravel string quartet, or I know like your other, uh, you have like a WC project too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, how has this stuff found okay. its way into your playing? Yeah. So again, I love jazz and I love the history yeah. of, of, uh, I love the history of bebop and hard bop and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also just love the piano. So, um, I get really, uh, my imagination really gets sparked by composers who compose really well for the piano. Um, and you mentioned Debussy and, uh, I was reading something recently where Alex Ross says that Debussy is one of the few people who can say that he found a new source of beauty in the world. <laughs> and I really think that's true. And, you know, he loved writing for the piano in a totally different way than anybody had before. Um, and so that kind of thing uh, really inspires me. Um, I come from kind of a piano lineage of people like Fred Hirsch, um, Keith Jarrett, who, you know, really deeply checked out the classical tradition. And there's just so much to draw from as a pianist, because, you know, unlike, say, you know, the saxophone, which has maybe a hundred year history, the piano has this 300, 400 year history where it's just been one of the main instruments at the center of music. Yeah. So, um, that's part of it for sure. Um, and yeah, I, I had the privilege of studying at the Eastman School of Music and I got really excited about music theory and 
um, I had these two great professors, Matthew Brown and Darius Tarafanko, and I got to take an independent study with each of them. Um, and on one hand, it was improvising in the, in the style of WC Preludes, and on the other, it was improvising fugues. So I've got a really deep uh, sense of not only loving classical music, but connecting it to improvisation, not kind of stopping with, oh, I enjoy this piece, or oh, I want to play this piece, but oh, I want to make my own version of this piece. Um, and that's always where I kind of approach classical music from. Like, what can I do to bring this element into my music? Man, that's that's awesome. Because I think I think there are more people that uh, think that way than that might openly say or, or whatnot. You know, it's really th th like this whole idea of genres or whatever. Like, who really cares? Mm -hmm. it's, there's music you <laughs> like and there's music you don't like. And that's fine. Other people might like it, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, I yeah, agree with you. I'm here for it. I, I was going to say, I, maybe this is just my perspective, but I also kind of see these things going in cycles. That It seems like classical music, when I was in college, like the big trend was combining classical music and jazz. And now kind of R&B and electronics seem to really be more in vogue and maybe the side of people who are doing something more kind of chambery um, is a little bit less in vogue. And, you know, I think the cycles will kind of come back and forth and, you know, exchange with each other. But it's kind of interesting to watch these things of, you know, I feel like in the 2000s, it was really kind of hip to be checking out um, that music. And now maybe it's more about checking out hip hop and neo soul and um, going in that direction. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how all this unfolds. Yeah. So, you know, you, you wrote these etudes and you're like, wow, I really like these. Uh, I'm going to make a record out of it. Um, Let's talk about that process, because I don't think that it's something that people should um, easily glance over the idea of making an album. Um, mm -hmm. And I know this isn't your first by any means. So what have you learned uh, throughout the process? What did you maybe do a little bit differently? this? Time? What would you do differently next time? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a large <laughs> task to take under. Yeah, it was actually very intimidating. Um, this is my first album where I'm really playing a lot of written out material, which is very different than going into the studio, just, you know, improvising. Um, and so that I felt kind of a pressure on a whole different level. Whereas, you know, if I'm going into the studio and I'm thinking about just like playing a good solo, um, then maybe I'm just focusing on getting myself grounded, you know, trying to feel loose, trying to really plug into what the other musicians are doing. But for this record, it was just me. And I had a lot of things that I really needed to play perfectly. And I knew that I needed to play them perfectly, uh, not just because I have high expectations for myself, but because, as I said, I'm coming out with this as a book. Um, and so people, hopefully, will be maybe following along with the with the recording. So if there's, you know, a note that wasn't as it is in the manuscript, uh, some group of people will know and maybe it'll be confusing to them as they're trying to learn the music themselves. So it was a lot of pressure um, to get that right. So. Um, I had this really cool experience where I recorded um, with using the Yamaha disc clavier. Um, so for those of you who don't know, the disc clavier is kind of a digital player piano. And Yamaha has come up with this kind of amazing recording process where you can um, basically record to the piano and then you can do whatever sort of editing you want. And then you can place the piano even somewhere else that's maybe more acoustically um, suited for the recording. And then you actually just press play on the piano. It plays back your recording and you get huh. it down to tape. So it's kind of amazing. Cause you know, imagine like we could have people walking in and out of the room as we were recording 
um, and it wouldn't affect anything because all I'm actually recording to is the instrument itself. It also gave me the opportunity to edit my playing in Logic, which was incredibly intimidating <laughs> um, yeah. because uh, you just have control over so much. And, you know, you don't want to change too much because then it doesn't sound like you or it sounds a little bit robotic. Uh, but when you're sitting there and you have the power to make some changes, um, it is tempting to make some changes. So yeah. um, I actually learned a lot from just going through that editing process. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was all very instructive about, you know, what, where I need to work on with my playing. Um, and uh, also, you know, of course, what I'm doing well. So um, it was scary recording all, the, all that written out music and doing just a record all by myself. You know, that's so interesting, because normally when you ask that question, you know, someone's like, yeah, I learned about time management in the studio, you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But this brings an entirely different concept um was that the idea of like recording to a player piano and and whatnot in that regards was that something that you were hesitant about at first or were you very much like excited and you wanted to try it or or whatnot because i know that that kind of um not i mean yes there is a disconnect but there's also not a disconnect because of course you played it at some point you know yeah <laughs> um but how did you feel about that um I felt and still feel weird. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's a certain just ethos as a jazz musician that you want to be, you know, you want your recordings to be completely authentic. Obviously, um, I think I've heard stories and a lot of us have heard stories about, you know, artists who play their solos, you know, lick by lick and completely, uh, you know, sound different on records than they do live. But I think there is a certain pride within the community of saying like, oh, this is exactly me as I played it in that moment. Um, that said, the advantages like, pretty far outweigh the disadvantages, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, just the freedom to, um, to be able to record that many times, to know that you could edit it. Um, and then also there were other kind of interesting parts. For example, I sing while I play. Um, and so that's often picked up in a recording. And for some people, that's, you know, a very positive thing. It's kind of cool to hear. Uh, for others, it could definitely be distracting. I'm not a good singer. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and sometimes I tap my foot when I play. And so none of that ends up getting picked up by the recording. It ends up being incredibly clean. Um, and like I said, I'm not sure whether I like that or not. Like there's a certain uh, gritty grittiness that I think I like hearing in a recording. Um, but I don't know. It's it's so tempting to try to be perfect that it's it's hard to say no to an opportunity where you're you know that your recording will be will come out really clean. Yeah, and I get what you mean by uh, like grittiness type thing because I think and I think that that's possibly a a difference between musicians maybe mm -hmm. and non musicians because like I love live records. I if yeah. if like I would hands down listen to a killing live record before a studio it's doesn't uh -huh. mean the album worse but i like hearing the room you know and hearing like yeah. the interaction and like the the mess ups and the grittiness to it but then there are people you know if i show that same record to someone else like i've had friends that have said like why are these people talking you know why can i hear glasses <laughs> well they're in like a club and that's what you know uh so i get that and that's that's an interesting um thing now when it came time to edit did mm -hmm. you 
you know, no, I, I don't put any shame on anyone that does editing. Yeah. I think like to say that you don't edit an album is just like absurd. You know, you got to edit some <laughs> EQing or, or whatnot. Um, did you find that you were you like, I'm only going to touch the parts that are like actually written or you were like, I'm going to tweak phrases throughout or like, what was your mindset going into that? Because that again is a lot more controlled than I feel you normally would have as a jazz pianist or whatnot. Yeah. It was kind of a terrible amount of control to have, to be honest, because, and I'm kind of a, uh, mildly OCD perfectionist. So like having that all in front of me was completely intimidating. And so, um, you know, I did fiddle with some detail-y things um, because I could, <laughs> and I just like, yeah, couldn't, yeah. Re- couldn't resist it. Um, and yeah, I think if I'm thinking about the person that I want to be, I would have just gone and tweaked, you know, those couple notes that uh, came out as a double note or something. Um, and then it's crazy because, you know, in logic, you can slow it down to a quarter of the tempo and then you can really hear problems, you know? Right. right, right. Um, and so I tried to resist doing that because I was warned, I think very wisely that, you know, if you go in too deep, it's not going to sound like a human anymore. It's going to sound like a machine. And, you know, I don't want that. I want it to sound, um, I want it to sound like me, even if that is slightly imperfect. Um, so there were a couple tracks where, you know, I did go in in a lot of detail and kind of fix some things. And then there were a lot of things that I, that I left. Um, what's interesting is that, um, and I, I didn't think about this. So if you're thinking about the piano, the pedal is regulated, right? And, you know, how it's regulated within a, I don't know, a tenth, a, quarter, a hundredth of a centimeter, like changes the way that you pedal. There's so much yeah. detail. Um, and so there was about maybe two months between, I think actually more between when I recorded it and when, uh, when it was recorded from the piano. Um, and in that time, the pedal had been regulated a number of times. And so we had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what was the original pedal regulation. And there are still some things on the album that I listen to it and it doesn't feel like my pedaling exactly. Um, so that was kind of a wild thing to figure out. Um, it was a, it was a weird That's process. Not- yeah. Um, and even, you know, you think about the action of the piano, it, you know, there's slight changes, but it is slightly different each time. Um, but what was really cool was that in terms of like miking, I could be list, I could be in the control room while I was recording the album, right? <laughs> so I yeah, could yeah, yeah. kind of actually be both, literally both places at once. Well, not, not literally, but for all intents and purposes, I could really be both places at once. So it's a, it's kind of a staggering amount of power to have. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure how to feel about it, honestly. Yeah, that's so. That's really tough to, uh, to, you know, think about because it's like, it's like almost like a little bit of like out of body experience, uh, yeah. type vibe. But man, I wouldn't even, you know, that's also something that I think a lot of us take for granted because like I play trumpet or a friend plays saxophone, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's an instrument I'm always going to have mm-hmm. and that I am the only person that knows when it gets adjusted versus mm-hmm. pianists yeah. that have mm-hmm. to show up somewhere and they're like, Here's the piano. Have fun. Yep. Um, totally. And it's kind of interesting, too, because there is, I mean, if you think about it historically, we have like Jelly Roll Morton piano rolls, 
right? Which is essentially the same thing, right? They'll get a piano roll of somebody playing, and then that will be the recording that we have of some of these really early artists. Uh, we have Gershwin piano rolls of him playing. Um, so there is like there is a precedent. It's not totally crazy. Um, and then uh, God, I can't think of the name of the composer um, who composed two-player piano um, because nobody could physically play his music. Um, <laughs> so there, there. Are, it's not like totally without precedent, but uh, it was yeah. a weird, weird experience. I'll be honest. Now looking back on it, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm coming from the assumption that it was a self-produced album. Yeah. Okay, do you, after experiencing all that and seeing, like, because, man, it is it is tough to go back and listen to yourself play, yes. at least for me. I hate it. Um, and, you know, I'll show recordings of someone, and they'll be like, nah, this is fine. And I'll be like, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that's trash. We're going to... Mm-hmm. So, like, do you wish you had a producer, like, someone to, to allow yourself a little bit of disconnect from the project because of the nature you went underneath, it, or the, you went through it? Um... Yes and no. I, I'm enough of a control freak that I don't think I could completely trust anybody else. Um, in the studio, I did have uh, have my friend Zach Lapidus, who's a great pianist in New York. Um, I did have him sitting in and kind of listening to each take and um, giving me a second opinion about what was working and what wasn't working. So I did have another voice um, in the room, which was nice. But uh, yeah, it's definitely on my list of personal attributes that I want to work on to work on letting go a little bit. Um, but, um, for me, this project was so personal in terms of, you know, I'd spent so long composing the through composed music and then figuring out what I wanted the improvisations to be in terms of what kind of section, what kind of texture that, um, I think it would have been hard to really have somebody else there managing it because there, there were just a lot of parts of it to manage. So, um, It would be fun to do a different kind of an album where, you know, I could have somebody else really in charge. But uh, for this one, it kind of had to be me. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, yeah, I think it, it's especially tough when it's not even like they're not helping manage the band. Like they're managing you because it's a right. solo piano <laughs> record. And so, you know, maybe it feels like a little personal at that point. Like, hey, Jeremy, you got to speed it up. And it's like, hey, man, this is my thing, you know? Yeah. Um Man, that's tough. So what's what's next for you? I know we got the album at the end of the month. Um, what you got the book that accomplished uh, accompanies the record, yes. which is all the etudes. But what's what's going on with you? What's next? Yeah, so um, I have a album coming out on Centaur Records, which is a classical music record label um, with uh, the saxophonist Andrew Rathbun. Um, and this is the Debussy record. We're doing improvisations on Debussy preludes. And it should be kind of a cool one because we also have a classical pianist, Laurie Sims, the original version of the preludes and it's going to be kind of uh, alternating between the original classical piece and then our improvisation and then the original classical piece and then the improvisation um i have a i'm working on kind of a concert piece for soprano julia bullock who's an amazing um classical soprano that's going to be premiered at the san francisco symphony soundbox project at the end of april so that's been a big project that's been underway um, and then I always do a lot of international teaching over the summer. Um, I'm excited, assuming that the coronavirus doesn't get worse. Um, I'm going to Brazil for the first time uh, this summer, but also going to Cyprus. Um, we'll see. We usually go to Lebanon over the summer as well. Um, trying to launch some more online content. It's in the works. It's coming. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I may or may not have mentioned uh, accompanying the album 
I'm doing a tour with Angeline Chang. Um, some of these dates will probably already be done by the time this podcast comes out, but we're going to be visiting uh, Cleveland, Fort Wayne, Kalamazoo, Chicago, playing at uh, Wild Hall at Carnegie Hall in New York, uh, Exuberance, a really cool club in Philadelphia, and then at a piano store in Natick, Massachusetts. So um, we got a big, we got a bunch of concerts coming up and then at the Blue Whale in LA on April 9th. So those are the big things ahead of me. Yeah. That's great. It's it's beautiful to be on the other side of this stuff. We're like, hey, look at this. Two projects coming out at the same time, you know, not not working on them simultaneously. I know. Right. <laughs> um, but of course, there's <laughs> as you know, there's a lot of work on this end, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I mean, everyone forgets about that side. You could do the record and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm ready to release it. And everyone goes, well, you're not done yet. You well, know? yeah, there's a million things to do um, to get that yeah. out. So, you know, we'll make it happen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, look, Jeremy, thank you uh, so much for coming on today. Uh, guys, the Perpetual Motion album is out at the end of the month. Uh, you've already heard about the WC uh, duo record that's coming out as well. The tour that's coming out. Catch the dates if you can. Um, check it out. Get the book. Shed some Perpetual Motion yeah, piano. <laughs> uh, I don't play piano because I can tell you it's difficult to do two hands at once. <laughs> so this is only going to kick it uh, even harder, guys. So once again, thanks, Jeremy, and uh, looking forward to the release. Thank you, Alan. <laughs>